Jillio. And I'm Wyatt Massey. And this is Frederick Uncut. Last week, the county hosted the Community Opioid Summit, which was the combination of the work of the Frederick County Health Department, the Frederick County Sheriff's Office, and the Frederick County Chamber of Commerce. And this summit really brought together different resources in the community to talk about the ongoing opioid crisis. Um, And our reporter, Heather, was there to sort of document what was going on and what people were saying. So I guess just to give you guys an idea of what happened at the summit, um, there's it was at the Frederick Fairgrounds, and so you had a bunch of speakers at one end of the building, and then a bunch of booths and tables full of providers um, on, you know, integrated care, pain relief, um, people helping with recovery services for those who do have substance use problems. Um, the sheriff's office was there, health department, other um, the chamber, they all had their own booths as well. Um, so we heard from speakers who had experience with their own um issues with opioids or other drugs then there was a mother who talked about her perspective on the uh, issue talking about her own experience with a daughter uh, who had substance use disorder there was a a chiropractor there to kind of talk about the neuroscience of substance use um, as well as some people from like the recovery um, center so Kate was in here last week to talk about the recovery high school so Sean Nicholson was there at the summit to kind of talk about what they're doing and his own experience. And in terms of the the amount of people there and what sort of communities were they from? So they were mostly Frederick County community members. You had people from the recovery communities, which also a lot of them are faith-based community um, recovery centers. So Cross Bridges was there. Then you had people from the ranch, which is one of the big recovery services here. Uh, you had people from the government side of our communities. You had the health department, sheriff's office, um, fire, and EMS. Were uh, you know there were a lot of people there, and I mean other people were just coming out to kind of experience this. Um, you saw all sorts of people there that you know you might not expect to see at an opioid summit, which was kind of exciting to see. And in terms of the hosts, it, it makes sense that the Frederick County Health Department would take this on. This is a public uh, health issue, and then the Frederick County Sheriff's Office because of the the legality of drugs um, and, and selling drugs. But then the Frederick County Chamber of Commerce was there as well. So I'm wondering what they add and why they're starting to get involved with, with this crisis. So the big message of the night was Frederick comes together. Frederick stands together to tackle on the opioid crisis. And so I spoke to Rick Weldon, who is the president of the chamber. And he, I asked him that same question, you know, what do the businesses offer? And one thing that really stuck out to me is that he said this is a human issue. It isn't just about the bottom line. The human issue, the human issues are as important to businesses as profit and loss, the balance sheet, the things that you know drive a company, health and wellness, keeping a workforce healthy, a workforce whose families might have issues. So I'm a big believer that if we can figure out how to destigmatize drug use, that's when we're going to start to make some real serious difference in terms of helping people escape this cycle. Um, so that so was some I, of the reasons I, that businesses came out and were part of this, but also businesses are part of our community and they can play a role in helping people. So tonight is the, is the answer, right? So it's bring them all together in a non-judgmental, friendly environment. Where, and we've, we've got folks here tonight that have actually made connections with providers to work on their um, treatment. It happened here, and you know the chamber being here, the chamber being a part of this. I mean, literally, it's it's connecting business values with human values because every single one of us, every one of us, has somebody who's in our lives that's been touched by this. 
So that, that's what we're hoping to accomplish, and I'm actually seeing it happen tonight. So. And then you also spoke scale. with some representatives from the health department as well. Yes. So I spoke with Jay Hessler, who is part of the health department, and he was in the back of the room um, helping people with the naloxone training. So they were providing continuous naloxone training so people could get trained to be able to take home naloxone with them. So if they ever came across someone who had overdosed, they can actually jump in and help. Um, so he spent a lot of time with me talking about the current state of our um, opioid crisis, but also he talked about the importance of uh, people first language. And he was actually one of the speakers and just about how difficult this um, opioid crisis is for people, but also people who are in it. And so one thing that he continuously says in his speeches is that we never know when we're talking even casually with a friend or something and, and you don't know who's going to overhear that information and you don't know who the person you're speaking with what they've been through or what one of their family members or friends have been through, <clears throat> excuse me, in general, we need to be more purposeful with the way that we're talking about this. Um, when we identify someone as a junkie or an addict, we're dehumanizing. Um, we're taking their humanity away and that's only going to further isolate someone. So it is important that we, we use person-first language. And if you feel the need to, to label someone, call them a person who uses drugs. Call them a person who injects drugs, whatever. Um, but first acknowledge their humanity and that they are a person and that they're valuable. Oh, and when you talk about the, the naloxone training, um, that's a word that gets passed around a lot. And also you see signs that says Narcan saves lives. So what is the difference between Narcan and naloxone and how do those, those work in helping people? So one is the brand name. I believe one is the generic um, but they're pretty much the same thing. So actually, and Jay did talk to me a little bit about that because it is kind of confusing. And so there are two major ways that you can get one of these drugs into your system. So the first is up your nose like a nasal spray. Um, the other one is kind of like an EpiPen. You jab it into your thigh and press down a quick release. Um, so they are, some actually actually have a, um, like a voice that actually will walk you through it. Um, other ones, you have to get the training so you know how to do it. But they're pretty user-friendly because the idea is that you want people to be able to help another person. You don't need to be a doctor or uh, EMT to be able to administer one of these. Um, but basically how Narcan so, or Naloxone uh, work. Narcan, when it gets in your bloodstream, seeks out the opioid receptor sites in the brain. It knocks opioids out of the opioid receptor sites deactivating them essentially <clears throat> and sits on top of the receptor site blocking any other opioids from getting on there and reactivating the site for about 30 minutes. So what it's doing is affording us about a 30 minute window where the brain is going to start sending the message to your heart, start beating again. It's going to send the message to your lungs, start breathing again because that's what the opioids are doing to your brain in the first place. It's keeping your brain from sending that message to the lungs and to the heart to breathe. And so gradually, as more of those opioid receptor sites are activated, the message stops going, and eventually it'll stop along with your respiration. That's how people die fatally from an opioid overdose. So Narcan is knocking those opioids out of the receptor sites, restoring respiration, hopefully for at least 30 minutes, while we get the EMTs on the scene to provide full medical care. And is there any concern, um, obviously, for, for someone who might want to help someone that they believe has overdosed? Is there any concern in administering Narcan and naloxone if the person isn't overdosing? Does it have any adverse side effects? It does not. Um, that is one of the things that you are supposed, you're not supposed to like keep giving them Narcan or Naloxone. You are supposed to wait so many times because sometimes with 
especially with fentanyl in our drugs nowadays, you might need more than one naloxone hit or Narcan hit. Um, but there isn't evidence that's going to give you adverse side effects. It's almost better to do it. And this ongoing crisis has been covered um, by the Frederick News Post from various angles, whether it's from yours, from the health or from the crime, or even our county reporter talking about sort of developments with this detox center in Frederick County. So can you give us a sense of the scope of the problem that's happening? So everyone I talked to said it's getting worse, um, which as a health reporter and someone who used to cover crime in a different county, I was kind of surprised to hear that. It's been about seven years since you, for this specific opioid crisis, but 2016 was kind of when we thought it was getting really bad. That's when fentanyl hit the markets um, and was starting to be put in the drugs. And you just saw the death rates, especially in Baltimore, where there was more drug use, they just really skyrocketed. You saw doubles in um, the amount of uh, fatal overdoses. It was really bad to... The next year has kind of started to go back down because you knew that fentanyl was on the market, so you can address that. But um, in 2016, we had 54 uh, fatal overdoses here in Frederick, and according to the sheriff's office. And now we, ha- we had 55 in 2018, so it's suggesting that it's going back up. Now, years peak and flow, but it's not a good sign that, you know, we're, on a, we're in 2019 now. We knew fentanyl was there in 2016. It's not necessarily a good sign that we're not seeing a drastic decrease in the number of uh, fatal overdoses. And in terms of getting using these drugs and getting addicted and eventually using them to the point of overdose, what are some of the ways that people can get involved with these drugs? So 80% is what Jay told me of uh, people coming from opioid prescriptions. Now, it's important to notice that it's not necessarily that they were prescribed an opioid. It could be that they just started misusing an opioid prescription, you hear about those parties where people will mess with people's prescriptions. And that's why drug take-back days are used a lot to get your drugs out of cabinets so that your high school students don't just go and try to um, use the leftover oxytocin or oxycontin that you have in your um, your cabinets. That is the thought is that a lot of times it comes from prescription opioids and then you move on to heroin, which is cheaper. Um, most people will say that they don't just start with heroin. Um, usually do come from those um, opioid prescriptions, which has been interesting in the news recently because Purdue Pharma and the family that runs them have been in a lot of legal trouble recently. And actually, I think I was reading an article over the weekend that um, a lot of museums are now pulling, uh, won't take any donations from this family. Um, the, the Sackler family. The Sackler family, yes, because they don't want any <laughs> drug money, essentially. Um, and so they've been in a lot of legal trouble because it turns out they probably knew, you know, some of these um, addictive effects of their drugs, but they were still pushing it. I had covered an opioid talk of two weeks ago, and they were talking about how there was a New England Journal of Medicine article that kind of came out without a lot of reasoning and a lot of evidence that said, yeah, prescribe these drugs. Like, we want to tackle pain. Pain is the fifth vital sign. We don't want people to be in pain anymore, so let's address that. And that kind of led to this idea of, oh, we should not feel pain, so let's, you know, give us drugs, which then led to people taking their drugs that their doctors were giving them and all of a sudden being like, I can't get off of this. Yeah, and the the idea of over over prescribing and getting way more pills. I remember when I was in high school and had my wisdom teeth taken out, my friend and I had it, them taken out at about the same time, and we both had the procedure, sort of recovered, and we were, we were both still sitting with bottles um, of of pills that we didn't need and we had no business really using, and we didn't really know how to get rid of them. But there are some movements now to to take these drugs back, and there was one in Frederick County recently. 
So yes, there was one in Frederick County over this weekend. Um, it was done by Maryland State Police and the Health Department. Um, it was up in Urbana. And they had 88 cars arrive over the weekend to drop off unwanted medication. And that they said that resulted in 231 pounds of medication. Um, 17 cars also came with syringes, and they had 6,192 syringes that were turned in. Um, they're also going to be having another one in Walkersville on June 8th. So if people didn't get out that time to give off their uh, unwanted medication or leftover medication, they can do it on June 8th. And we should say, too, that people that are turning in these drugs or these syringes, there's really no questions asked um, for them. The, the health department and the state police are just looking to get these things sort of off the streets or out of people's homes. Exactly. So after attending this conference or this summit and actually talking with people, one of the questions that I had for most of the people I interviewed was, why now? You talk about it's been seven years since the opioid crisis has started, and we saw 2016, as we talked about, had one of the worst spikes in overdoses because of fentanyl. So why is it now 2019 that the county is holding this summit together? Um, so I asked that, and one of the things was it is just getting worse, and it is now time, and you know they have been trying different things, but it, they just haven't been doing enough. So people have talked about getting to the root causes, getting to the preventative side, um, really making sure that we tackle it from the right angles, which is something that I think now, seven years later, people are starting to realize that what they were doing for the first seven years is maybe not working. It's Clearly, it's not through the numbers. So I think with this summit, people are really excited to see that people came out and that you did have different angles and different community members come out. And I believe that they're planning to do it again just to keep awareness as we talked about but trying to talk about getting people all in one room and talking about how can we actually start preventing this how can we help the people who are already affected and already need treatment services but also how do we prevent someone from you know starting to use an opioid prescription Um, how do we prevent someone from misusing an opioid prescription and prevent them from getting to a point where now they need recovery services yeah i think one of the sad realities of this problem growing is that more and more people are affected by it in terms of you know someone who passed away from addiction or someone who's suffering from addiction so you get more and more people mobilized that want to get involved and then this sort of grows at the same time the movement to to prevent this type of thing grows at the same time that the problem is growing as well and i think that's one of the things that we talk about there's a lot of awareness events uh, in the county which there are and they can be good and they can maybe not always contribute to actually stopping or helping the problem. But awareness and talking about it and getting people out in the community does address the stigmatization of something like drug use. And that is very hard because people talk about how people don't always seek help because they don't want to admit that they have a problem or they don't want to have to talk to people about it. They want to keep it to themselves. Um, by talking about this and having you know events that are hosted by our community government, think that can help people realize that it is something that they can talk about and they can seek help and they can talk to their family members or they can go to their community services like the health department or the county government which is working on bringing a detox center and saying I do need help Um, I can't do this alone Mm -hmm. and especially for people in addiction I don't know if the resources and people that you've talked to have mentioned this but I know with with addicts or former addicts that I've talked to it's a very fine line in recovery in terms of once you get sober, it's not a line that you pass that you never look back. You're always sort of 
battling that and you can you can fall back into addiction very quickly yeah one thing that um people talked about was the idea of relapsing because people kind of get angry when people relapse sometimes just because it's hard to understand if you haven't personally experienced it but it isn't a straight line it's not like i go into rehab and it works the first time and now i'm cured and i get to live my life it's i go to rehab the first time it may not work maybe it needs a second time maybe i relapse or, you know, you can relapse pretty badly after going through treatment because you go and you're like, all right, I need this stressor is coming at me. I just got um, went through rehab, but now I have the stressor and I can't do it without the drugs. And then you go and you take the same amount that you were taking, which now you your body can't adjust to that. So then you see more overdoses. So your relapse could be even worse the first time just because your body's not used to it. Um so they were talking about how for the people outside of that who are not experienced the relapse, who are there to support the person, you can kind of get angry because you just don't always understand that it's not a straight line and you ask people, well, why are you doing this? And like you mentioned, a number of these people who are suffering with substance abuse disorder, they might have started because they got hurt at work and they're prescribed these pills. So I'm wondering with the recovery advocates that you talk to, did they ever talk about different ways that people can deal with problems going forward? Because I'm thinking that these people who have recovered, they might go back to work and they might get injured again. So how do they balance that and not fall back into addiction? Are there other things that they can do? So one of the things that the chiropractor who I spoke with, who was one of the speakers mentioned, is the idea of lower uh, chronic lower back pain, which is one of the issues that people get prescribed medication for the most. And he was saying, like, sometimes people actually hurt themselves worse because they take um, a painkiller that's an opioid painkiller. And so then they don't feel anything. So they're like, yeah, I'm fine. I can go back to work. And then they lift something heavy and they don't feel it, but they're actually injuring themselves. So then their prescription runs out and they're like, doctor, I'm in so much more pain. It's because they hurt themselves while they were still healing. Um, so some of the ideas is like, maybe we don't need to not feel pain. Maybe pain is a sign to let us know when we, you know, still need to rest and recover. And Maybe it is something like ibuprofen or over-the-counter uh, pain relief can be enough. Um, other places talked about, like, I didn't get to talk to as many of the people, but I did find it was very interesting that the ranch was set up in such a place that their booth was right across from, like, integrative medicine, which can talk about different ways to address pain. So you were seeing people who are kind of talking about this idea of people who are in pain, you know, who needed those pills or who weren't addicted, or they were kind of felt a little bit forgotten in this whole crisis because they were now in pain and people were, you know, they were not uh, prescribing opioids as much as a way to start addressing this. So I did think it was very interesting that this community summit had people to who could address pain, had people who could address recovery, had people who could address prevention. So one thing that the business side also provides, because you have to think of recovery services as they're nonprofits, but they also kind of come from the business side. So they talked about that, you know, people at the summit, some people were there to learn more, some people were there as an to help increase the awareness, but some people actually were able to connect with recovery services that they might not have known. Um, so they were, they people talked how they actually had conversations with people who needed their services and were able to make those connections that they might not have been able to before because they had them all in one room, um, which is something I think that they were trying to aim at. This was a, an awareness event um, between the uh, different partners, but I think that was one of their hopes was maybe they had actually get that one person to get into recovery because they were able to access resources in one spot instead of traveling up to Emmitsburg or traveling to Frederick or um, someplace that they don't usually go. So for people that are concerned about this issue or are following, um, we at the News Post, we 
covering a couple things that are going on in terms of how the county is responding to it. One being the the detox center that's going to be opening soon and the involvement with that. It was recently announced that they had picked the provider for that detox center and it should be opening soon. And on the state side, there were a couple of bills that were going through the Maryland legislature about opioid addiction. And one that uh, did not end up going through was the safe injection site that I had written about with our state house reporter, Samantha Hogan. And that was talking about an idea of having a site where people could come and we run kind of like a medical uh, facility where you'd have people on staff who are medically trained and you could in- take the drugs that you needed in a safer uh, spot. That way, if for some reason you overdose, you had people on the scene right there who could help administer Narcan, although they actually talked about how by having medical people there, you tend to not have as many um, people misusing um, in the sense that they kind of were able to talk about how much they should take. And it was just an idea of like, let's make this a safer way to do it. Let's not make it so people have to go find a back alley or do it in a parking lot in their car. Let's bring people here. And um, they had some cited some places up in Canada, I believe, that had actually done this pretty well, but that failed. Um, but there were some other things looking at different ways to address opioids from a state. Um, part of the um, detox uh, center was funded partly because of a state grant. So the state is also aware of this and seeing what we're doing in Frederick County. And the other funding story to follow is that our county executive, Jan Gardner, her, her budget will be out mid-April, and that will include funding for things like the Frederick County Health Department and some of these initiatives that are addressing the issue in the county. And on the education side, as you heard last week, uh, our own Kate Masters was talking with Sean Nicholson and people from the Phoenix Foundation about creating a recovery high school here in the county, which would be so that high school students or people who are in um, still in school but were dealing with their own substance use disorder could go to school while in a location where they can address both their substance use and their education. And speaking of Kate and her work with 72 Hours, we have reached the part of our show where we talk to Kate live about what is happening this week in 72. Hey, guys. Hey, Kate. So, Kate, what can we expect this week in 72? Okay. Well, I'll start with the cover story again, um, which is on a lighter topic this week. Um, I don't know if either of you have noticed while walking around downtown Frederick, but there are a lot of barber shops now, like more than six within a seven block vicinity. And so I sort of go into that trend and the rise of barber shops in Frederick and sort of all the different social factors um, that are contributing to the confluence in our area. And um, that was pretty fun. I got to speak to sociologists about changing standards in men's grooming um, and sort of the culture around the barbers that have set up shop here. So that was a fun story for me to report. And if I remember correctly, there might be some multimedia elements involving another staff member. Oh, yeah. The actual, the the key part of this story is that our colleague Steve um, agreed to come with me and get his hair cut. He got the full cut shaved beard and everything um, at one of the newest barber shops downtown and that's going to be a multimedia component that you won't want to miss to see Steve's transformation. And it's quite a transformation because Steve went from full beard, winter beard, and full hair like 1970s Burning your, draft, <laughs> burning your draft card style like hair. burning man yeah like bill bill green took the video and we were actually both very shocked at the transformation i walked in the next day and i really did not recognize steve i was kind of surprised with him sitting there yeah and shout out to everyone who was involved because i was covering a story and i returned 
and Steve was still not back. Steve and I live together. People should know. Because it took Steve's haircut like two and a half hours? It was two and a half hours. Like I will say that it was longer than I have ever spent in a salon in my life. I mean, to be fair, I was asking a lot of questions during the process and Steve had a lot of hair, but it was like a very, very intensive experience. So something to look forward to. (laughs) And if that story didn't entice you enough, what else can readers expect? Yeah, so if that wasn't enough for you, um, I have another story that's on a group called Chefs Without Restaurants. Um, This is sort of, again, a group that coalesced online and was founded by a um, personal chef here in Frederick named Chris Spear. And he has an interesting backstory, like years in the food service industry, And then he decides that he sort of wants to get back into cooking because, of course, once you reach that level of upper management um, in the culinary industry, you kind of tend to stop doing the day-to-day cooking. So he leaves the kitchen, leaves Sodexo, which is this, like, international food company, starts his own business, and then decides and then realizes, rather, that he misses the camaraderie of the kitchen and that there are some benefits, you know, of course, to having, like, four sous chefs who you're constantly working with. So he formed this group. And the original intention was sort of to bring together culinary professionals in Frederick um, and the surrounding areas who weren't working within the confines of a traditional restaurant or a traditional kitchen. And it's been interesting because the group's been around for a year and the scope is kind of broadening and changing. And so I got to talk to Chris about that and sort of what he plans to do with it. And speaking of food... What kind of review should we look forward to this week? Well, you know Heather. <laughs> Heather is my is my loyal um, food review buddy. Excuse me. I like to refer to as her friend that she takes on these trips. Yeah, she's my date um, in most of these reviews. But this week we went to the Carriage House Inn, um, which is a continuation of my recent focus on the historic restaurants of Frederick. It's in a structure that's existed since the 18th century and has been a restaurant since 1953. And I will say um, that they have a very old school menu. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's just sort of a focus. You get dishes like chicken Florentine and crab imperial, which were really, really popular menu items sort of in the mid 20th century, like I'd say like 50s through 70s. And then it's the sort of restaurant where it's interesting to me because it's clearly catering to like people who grew up in Frederick County. It's the type of restaurant that you don't tend to see as much in our increasingly urban area. But sometimes it's nice to kind of go and have a throwback meal like that. Um, it ended with we got each got a red rose um, to conclude the meal. And I just thought that was like a very cute flourish that I appreciated. Well, Kate, thank you very much for again joining us and talking about your work. It was my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Frederick Uncut is produced by me, Wyatt Massey. And me, Heather Mangilio. And edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week. Next week.